The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Okay, we're going to continue our series in Acts chapter 2. So if you turn with me to Acts 2, we're going to read the first 13 verses. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all of these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Egypt, uh, Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine to drink. Let's pray. So, Father, we, we thank you for this event. And we pray that you would give us wisdom and clarity and understanding this morning as we study your word. To understand what it meant then. And to understand what it means for us today as your people following after Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen. So uh, I, I was at this, this wedding uh, about three, three weeks ago. And I met this guy at this wedding who was half Korean like me. Not, not full-blooded Korean, mind you, but, but half Korean like myself. His father's Korean, my father's Korean. And so I thought, hey, we, we can be friends. But, but then he told me that his mother is Turkish. And I said, oh, yeah, well, my mother's Armenian. And we turned and walked away from each other. <laughs> no, we, we didn't do that. But we, we did immediately, both of us immediately laughed. We immediately laughed because we knew that, in an, we saw some irony there. We knew that in another setting, our mother's heritage might have posed a problem. Uh, it might have carried some unpleasant meanings. You, you see, many of you will know that at the turn of the last century, a million Armenians were massacred by the Turkish. And when Hitler wanted to do the same thing to the Jews, he said, who remembers, he referenced it, and he said, who remembers the Armenians now? So he said. And unfortunately, these things have a habit of being passed down from generation to generation to generation. So, so that sometimes, even today, if you hear an Armenian say something like, I'm going to visit the Turkish embassy, what, what they mean is they're going to use the bathroom. Now, that's, no, no offense to Turkish friends here this morning. I have Turkish friends. I've heard jokes that go the other way too, okay? But, but we've, um, we've, this guy was, uh, this, that I met at this wedding, because he and myself are both mutts, we're both mongrels. I think those are the politically correct terms, right? We're, we're both mutts and mongrels. He immediately gave me a big hug, and, and we joked about the, the, the fact that, uh, that at least the Korean side of us could get on with each other just, just fine. <laughs> You know, you know, if I ask you to think about racial tension, racial divisions, racial conflict, right now, so, so many probably would flood your mind right now, it would be hard to pick one out from the crowd. 
You know what I mean, right? You turn on the news, watch it for five minutes, and it's like this is being highlighted, exaggerated, blown up all around the world right now. Friends of ours, Bill and Christy Bowers, many of you know them and love them and are supporting their ministry out in the Middle East. They've got an amazing ministry out there. They're working very hard. And uh, those guys were telling us that that because of the refugee crisis, the churches have been flooded with, re- with refugees. So these churches have about 40 or 50 people, and now 140, 150 each. And they're all there to receive help. And most of them are Muslims. And many of them are coming to Christ in those churches. Now, now of course, before they come to Christ, some of them are Sunni. And sometimes Shiite. Sometimes you have both in the same church. And you can feel the tension. And I know that's meant to be a religious difference, but actually if you ask the people on the ground, they'll tell you it's as much ethnic and tribal division as it is religious. Some friends just got back from the Ukraine. I mean, you know the TBC's got this ongoing, wonderful, ongoing relationship with these churches in the Ukraine. 22 years now. It's great. And so just, just in the last few weeks, several trips have just got back from the Ukraine, and they were telling me, these friends were telling me that the that they've never seen the Ukrainians so nationalistic. There are Ukrainian flags everywhere. And, and if, you, if you use a Russian word, some of them will correct you and say, no, 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 the, the, the Ukrainian word for that is this. They don't want to hear the language of the imperialists being used now that there's this invasion and occupation and old hatreds are reignited and it's us versus them again. Closer to home in Missouri... A young man unarmed is shot and killed and these racial tensions that are always simmering beneath the surface suddenly flare up and are felt throughout the nation. And only someone with severe historical amnesia could possibly wonder why. And what else? Oh yeah, the Scots this week. Uh, The Scots uh, voted in a referendum for their independence um, in an attempt to make the not-so-great Britain even less Great Britain. Uh, thankfully that didn't work out for them so we're glad about that on Wednesday or Thursday whenever it was Armenians and Turks or Russians and Ukraines or black or white or Sunni or Shiite each of these stories may vary slightly some are more divergent than others but the results are the same the results are the same you end up with the same set of fears and suspicions you end up with the same set of hatreds and angers, you end up with the same set of resentments and bitterness. Or you can change the DNA out, you can change the genetics out all you want. You can replace Armenians and Koreans with Russians and Ukrainians, or replace Russians and Ukrainians with Sunni or Shia, whatever. You can keep Japanese and Korean, or um, yeah, whichever one, all of those, you can keep switching them out, but you end up in the same place. Each group is making the same claim that you don't understand the history that we've been through, you don't understand what those people did to us, you don't understand our culture, and, and each one making a special pleading for why their bitterness, their resentment, their seething hatred is legitimate and justified. And man, when you hear their stories, humanity is fractured. Humanity is divided against itself. Can it be put back together again? Will it ever be put back together again? Where is all of this going? Well, That's the first D for this morning. This morning I'm going to take a page out of Gary's book and we're going to do a little bit of alliteration. Okay? So here's D for division, but D is also for uh, dystopia. Um, Do you you like dystopias? You know know those those stories about a place or a place in time where everything is just really, really bad? 
There's a whole rash of them right now, books and movies. The, the Hunger Games, there's Divergent, um, The Giver. I think The Giver was my favorite out of those, those three. I thought that was better. Um, and then all of these, of course, are inspired by earlier versions uh, of those kinds of stories. George Orwell's 1984, and Animal Farm, or Arias Huxley's Brave New World. And, and there's a fascination with, with these um, scenarios, nightmare scenarios, where the world has met with some terrible catastrophe. And society is rebuilding itself and has rebuilt itself in, into, into what at first seems like a, a wonderful utopia. This place where everything is sweetness and light, where people live in peace and harmony, where they've done away with old hatreds, where they've got rid of those divisions and, and, they, and their law, war is long gone. They live in peace and harmony. But, you know, this, the strange thing is whenever you step foot, from the moment you step foot in one of these utopias, you, you know that there's something not quite right. There's something a little off, right? There's something that doesn't quite fit. And you're not sure what it is, but if you hang around for long enough, you discover that this peace and harmony has been bought at a terrible price. And this thin utopian veneer is just a covering for a dark and sinister and suffocating dystopia, right? I love those stories. I, I, I don't know why. But there's those places where, where peace has been bought by silencing all other voices, where, where division has been overcome only by doing away with different, and their harmony is not really harmony, because what they've done is subsumed all uniqueness, individuality, personhood into the collective. Yeah, I've, I've always enjoyed those, fascinated by those kinds of scenarios. Did you know that the, the Bible actually starts out fairly early on um, with one of, those, one of those kinds of stories. In, in Genesis chapter 11, do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Um, at first, when you arrive in Babel, I think that was the original dystopia, I, th- I, think it, I think out of which all the other dystopian literature was born. When you first arrive in Babel, you think to yourself, this is a wonderful place. Everyone's, everything's sweetness and light. The people of Shinar, that is Babylonia, had a united vision. They had a noble cause. They didn't want to be split up. They didn't want to be divided as a people. Rather than being scattered over the face of the whole earth, they wanted to live together as one people in one place, speaking one language under one name. And so they set about building this great city. And the architects had this wonderful idea of placing a tower right in the center of that city, a tower that would reach into the heavens and be seen for miles around, serving as a symbol of unity for the city's inhabitants. This is the the utopian vision, the utopian dream of Babel. And that's certainly your first impression when you arrive there. I I remember reading that when I was in my teens for the very first time. I remember reading that and thinking, what's wrong with this? This This is a great place. That's how you feel when you first arrive in Babel. But you hang around for long enough and you soon discover the dark underbelly of this city. You see, just 10 chapters earlier, in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God creates... God creates such diversity, such variety, and at the helm of God's creation, God has put humanity. Humanity is supposed to rule over this creation, spread out and multiply, and spread out over the globe, ruling and nurturing this variety, this diversity. That is God's creation. But instead, these people are huddling together. They refuse to spread. They huddle together in one place as one people, speaking one language, under one name, a name that they will make for themselves, by themselves. Deliberately monocultural, deliberately monolingual, this city has organized itself against God. 
They've bought peace, but only by silencing all other voices. They're certainly not hearing God's voice. They've, 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 got, they've, got away with, they've done away with division, but only doing away with different. And it turns out this utopia is nothing but a covering for a sinister and, and suffocating dystopia. Think of an anthill. You know, in an anthill, an ant's nest, those little individual ants don't have their own individual unique personalities, do they? They're all kind of drones. Or if, or if you watch Star Trek, think of the Borg, right? We will assimilate you. If you don't watch Star Trek, just keep thinking about the ants' nest. But, but if, you, if you watch Star Trek, think of the Borg. Or how about this? Everybody gets dressed into their mouth. Everyone's wearing Mao suits. You know, Chairman Mao in communist China had that outfit. Everyone wore the same outfit, their Mao suits. Or, or imagine all the guys here getting their hair cut uh, in exactly the same way as the great and illustrious North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, right? And it says that God scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth. God confused the language of the whole world. God confused the language of the whole world. So think about division and think about dystopia. And now you're going to be really mad with me because I know you're meant to have a third D, but I don't have one. Okay, so. But think about division. Think about dystopia. Now listen to this. So the Lord, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came to them in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it each of us hears them in our native language, Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? It's a great question, isn't it? What does this mean? Well, it's the, the birth of the church. This is Pentecost. It's the birth of the church. Happy birthday, church. This is true. This is when the church was born. But what does the birth of the church mean? What does the birth of the church signify? Well, it's when the Holy Spirit came and filled the believers for the very first time. That is true. But why? Why does the Spirit fill these believers? What does it mean that the Spirit did this? Well, the Spirit gave them these ability to speak these languages. Okay, okay but why? What does it mean that the church is born? What does it signify that, that the Spirit fills these believers? What does it mean that they speak these different languages? What does it mean? Some of, some of you may be waiting for me to get into a, a bit of an exposition on the gifts of the Spirit this morning, on, on the gifts of tongues and the gift of languages, and to ask, well, are these one and the same gift, or are these two different types of gift? So, some of you may be waiting me to, wanting me to give you kind of like the, the official TBC line on the gifts of the Spirit and how we expect these gifts to be used or not, as the case may be. And, and I could do that. And, and I know that some of you would like what I had to say, and some of you would definitely not like what I had to say. And then you might not want to be my friend anymore. And, and that could be divisive. I mean, historically speaking, since the church in Corinth, this has sometimes, not always, but sometimes been made a contentious issue and been a divisive issue. But how ironic is that? How ironic would that be? Because if this Holy Spirit event means anything, and it means several things, but if this Holy Spirit event means anything, it means at least this, 
that God is reversing the effects of the Tower of Babel. God is reversing Babel and God is piecing together that fractured humanity. He's putting them back together again. So to divide over something, to split over something like this, that's not just irony, that is perverse. Because what we see here in Acts chapter 2 is the beginning, just the beginning of God starting to heal the nations, heal humanity. It's the beginning of God leading us not away from each other, but back to each other. What God, God is making peace. Peace, not in the, the sense of calm and tranquility. Not, not peace in the sense of no fuss, no friction. But peace in the, in the deeper sense of that Hebrew word shalom. That, that healing, that wholeness, that making things whole again. That piecing together of the, the different pieces of the puzzle so that they fit with each other. Shalom. God is reversing the effects of Babel. He's putting humanity back together again. Now, I just want to stop there for a moment, and, and I just want to clarify what, what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. The gospel has a very personal dimension to it. The gospel has a very personal dimension to it, because what it means is that Jesus has died for your sins and for my sins. Not, not just the sins in general, but for your specific, peculiar, special, particular way of screwing things up. And mine. And so by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, we can receive forgiveness of our sins. The gospel has a very personal dimension to it. Which means that you can't just ride on your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith. You you can't just have some tradition handed to you or count on the fact that you're a member of some church somewhere uh, as if it were just about joining some sort of, having some club membership. You have to be some personal appropriation to this. There is a very personal dimension to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means that you can be reconciled to your creator and you don't have to experience this vicariously through a priest or some other group of people. You can experience this personally for yourself. There is a very personal dimension to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've underlined it, I've circled it, I've highlighted it for you. If you don't already know that, you need to know that and I want you to know that this morning. But if you already know that, I want you to hear this. There is a personal dimension to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not tightly wrapped around the individual and their eternal destiny. I'm going to say that once more. There is a personal dimension to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not wrapped tightly around the destiny, around the individual and their personal and eternal destiny. It's not. But let, let, me, let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. So I was having lunch with a friend last weekend. And he was very graciously sharing with me some of his spiritual journey over the last few years. And in the last few years, he's come to the conclusion that there is no God. And that he doesn't believe in Jesus. And in the last couple of years, he's finally plucked up the courage to walk away from the church. Now, this wasn't an easy thing for him at all. Because, first of all, he'd been brought up in the church. He'd been brought up in a Christian home. For many of us, for many of you. Brought up in a Christian home. And he wasn't just riding on his parents' faith. He'd, he'd made this personal for himself. He had confessed Jesus as his personal savior. He was trusting Jesus to go to heaven. This is, this is what he'd done. And so he said it wasn't an easy thing to walk away. He said it was difficult because at some point it had been a personal conviction, but a personal conviction which somewhere along the way had ceased to make sense of life and the reality and the world we live in. And here's how he articulated it. 
Okay? And this is what he said, and this is what grabbed my attention. He said, Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven. I've accepted and asserted for some years now, Jesus is my personal savior. And then? And then what? What does that have to do with the rest of my life and the rest of reality? You see, a guy like him watches the news like us, right? We watch the news, he watches the news, and he sees a fractured humanity. He sees a broken world. He wonders, can it be put back together? Should we try? Can it be put back? Will it be put back together? Where is this all heading? And then he thinks about his own personal salvation. Jesus died so I can go to heaven. And he wonders, what does that have to do with this, with this reality? It seems like an escapism, an escape from that reality. But, but how does the gospel speak into that reality? You see, in a, in a Western culture of individualism which is where we live in a culture of individualism the gospel has been so tightly wrapped around the individual but you see the gospel is not just good news for the individual the gospel is good news for humanity there is a there is a personal dimension to the gospel but there is also a very corporate and communal dimension to the gospel as well here's how the the apostle paul describes it in ephesians chapter 2 He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, and the two groups he's talking about here are are Jews and Gentiles, but Gentiles are divided against themselves as well. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself, his purpose, right? So so we're asking, what what does this mean? This Acts chapter 2, what does it mean? His purpose was to create in himself One new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Did did you catch that? He talks about our reconciliation to each other. But then when he talks about our reconciliation to God, he talks about it in corporate terms. Did, Did you get that? When He talks about our reconciliation to God. He talks about it in corporate terms. He he makes us a new humanity. He makes us a new body. And as that new body, that new humanity, he presents us through the cross to God himself. There's this corporate dimension. There's this communal dimension to the gospel. And so the the application here is, is very simple. As we proclaim the gospel to this generation, to this culture, which is very rapidly slipping away from the church, by the way. As we proclaim the gospel, announce the gospel to this culture, to our generation, the generation that is up and coming, let's make sure that we are not announcing a one-dimensional gospel. A one-dimensional gospel which has the gospel so tightly wrapped around the individual that they can't even see, the individuals themselves can't even see how this relates to them and the rest of life and the reality they live in. Let's make sure that they can see that the gospel is good news not just for the individual but for humanity. That there is a personal dimension to the gospel but there is a corporate and communal dimension to the gospel as well. So that when people wonder aloud, what is the destiny for humanity? What is going to happen? Can we ever be put back together? Should we be put back together? Will it happen? we can speak the gospel right into those questions. And not as a form of escapism, I'm off to heaven, but as good news for humanity, as the healing of the nations, the healing of the nations, which the prophets often talk about. Now when God does this, when when God starts to put humanity back together again, it's not buying peace, 
by silencing all other voices. It's, it's not getting over divisions by doing away with the different. It's not about subsuming all uniqueness and individuality and personhood into the collective. It's, it's, let's be very specific about what we see here. God does not eliminate the linguistic differences. He doesn't have them all speaking the same language. They don't all become monolingual, all speaking Hebrew or something. They hear all of this diversity of different languages. God doesn't then eliminate the different cultural differences. Luke seems to create, take great delight in listing off the different, the, the different cultures and people and tribes that are there. And these people are not going to huddle together in one place. These people were just there for the holidays. It's like Thanksgiving. This was the Feast of Weeks, and when it was over, they, they were going to go. You come home for Thanksgiving, but then you go back to your place and, and to the, the different nations and people. You see, it's not one people in one place speaking one language. This is not Babel. This is the exact opposite of Babel. The invitation is not come and be an ant drone or we will assimilate you. This isn't everyone put on your mouse suit and get your hair cut like Kim Jong-un. It's the exact opposite of that when God starts to put humanity back together again. C.S. Lewis is helpful here. He... um, He was a part of a a group of friends which included Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, and another author, Charles Williams. And Charles Williams died unexpectedly after World War II. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis wrote this meditation on his friend's death, which he entitled Friendship. And here's what he says. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's, Tolkien's, reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness of resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. You know, in that that last section there, Lewis is actually referring to this, this vision of humanity. Humanity as we've never really seen it, but as we will see it one day. Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. What Lewis points to and Revelation describes is that life together, when we're invited to become part of the body of Christ, to become part of the the renewed humanity, life together in genuine solidarity with each other will not eliminate personhood. It will enhance it. It will realize it more fully. It won't eliminate it. Not the way God puts humanity back together. And also, and this is crucially important, genuine human solidarity combined with that diversity. Solidarity and diversity at the same time. Very rarely do you find that. Well, that's because it can only be found with God. You see, I'm not commending some sort of Western relativism. You know, which says that every point is equally good and true and right. Every, every aspect of every culture must be affirmed. We, we mustn't ever say, this is all good and true and right. Any old thing will do. That, that's Western relativism. I'm not, I'm not commending that at all. 
I know why some people would, it is, and it's for good reasons. It's because, quite often it's because they, they don't want to silence all other voices. They don't want to marginalize the different and get rid of the different. They, they don't want to end up, in other words, in a totalitarian, oppressive dystopia. Who does? I re- understand that. But please consider this. Please consider this. Those totalitarian dystopias, totalitarianism works by, by getting everyone, silencing all other voices, by getting everyone to say the same thing. Totalitarianism silences all other voices by getting everyone to say the same thing. On the other hand, Western relativism appears to allow everybody to get up and say something, every, anything that they want to say. But watch what happens when they do. As soon as they get up to speak, they realize they've got nothing left to say because relativism will not allow anyone to have any serious convictions or any serious beliefs about anything. And so here's the irony, is that totalitarianism and relativism, which wants to avoid precisely that totalitarianism, totalitarianism and relativism end up in the same place, effectively silencing the voice of the other. Now, you see, it's only with God that we can find that diversity and that genuine solidarity at the same time. And, and this is widely recognized. It's widely recognized not, not just by Christian authors. This, this is actually widely recognized by other atheists as well. Uh, the, the, the late philosopher and atheist Jacques Derrida, one of the postmodern philosophers, he says this. He says, today the cornerstone of international law is the sacred. The sacredness of man as your neighbor made by God. In that sense, the concept of crime against humanity, in other words, and including in that concepts of tolerance and human rights, concepts of tolerance, concepts of human rights, concepts of crimes against humanity, is a Christian concept. And I think there would be no such thing in the law today without the Christian heritage. This is an atheist, he's a postmodern philosopher, and he's saying this. He just recognizes this reality. Look, the Christian invitation today, the, the church's invitation to our culture, to our world today is this. How about you don't just leave God as some abstract concept which you pull out every now and then to support these ideals you have about tolerance and about human rights. Don't leave God as some abstract concept out there that you, you use to support these ideals. But how about you come and get to know that God? How about you come and get to love that God, get to worship God, and see God move you way beyond tolerance and, and human rights? And those are good things, don't get me. We want rights and, and tolerance. But God want, doesn't want you to settle for that. He wants to move us way beyond rights and tolerance to this thing called love and unity and solidarity and shalom. Shalom. Well, I'm, I'm going to end with this. Um, you, know, you know when Jesus told his disciples to go and wait for the Spirit to come? And so they go and wait, and they're waiting for days, but they haven't just been waiting for days, have they? They've been waiting all their lives for this. They, and along with the rest of Israel, has been waiting for generations, for centuries for this. You see, Israel, and you're familiar with this idea now, Israel had been in exile, but they'd been brought back from exile. Physically, they were back in their homeland. Israel was physically back from exile, but God had not returned to his temple. They were waiting for a Shekinah glory to descend upon the temple, but God wasn't there. Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed, but he hasn't returned. Where is God? And so as far as they were concerned, even though they were physically back in the land of Israel, 
as far as they were concerned, they were still in exile from their God. And so when the Holy Spirit comes that day and fills the believers, the the centuries-long wait is over. The generations of waiting is over. The Spirit of God has finally returned to Jerusalem, to His temple. Well, not to the temple of physical bricks and mortar of stone, but, but to the living temple, the temple that is His people. So what this spirit coming means is that the end of exile from God is over. And if the exile from God is over, surely our exile from each other is over too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for that moment, that event, when your spirit came and filled believers. And we thank you that your spirit continues to fill your people today. Father, may we live this out. May this story grip our hearts. May we live out this this unity and diversity, this wholeness and healing. God, that the nations would know that the gospel is the healing for the nations. Father, help us to announce a gospel that is not tightly wrapped around the individual, but is a blessing to the nations. And that corporate, communal, dimension to the gospel would be made known as well. To your glory we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.